Alrighty, I invite you to grab a Bible and go to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. If you don't have a Bible, there's probably a red one in front of you. Uh, we're kind of running out of those, so we got to get ourselves some new Bibles there. Uh, the passage of Scripture is also in your bulletin as well as on the screen. And so as you're turning there, uh, most of you should have got a little card in your bulletin. So this is kind of week two uh, of what we're memorizing together as a family. And so remember, in case you're new here, we're we're in a kind of like a 40-day journey that's called a season of Lent. And we do that because we don't want Easter to be a surprise, right? We want our hearts and our minds to be prepared for the celebration of the resurrected uh, Jesus Christ. And so to do that, uh, we're, we're wanting to journey together and memorize three psalms. So we just got done memorizing Psalm 8. We're going to step in over the next two weeks and memorize Psalm 130. So you got the first half of that with the little card. And then we'll land the plane in the last two weeks memorizing Psalm 100. And just as a reminder, I know we don't use this language, but the reason why we're using those three psalms is because they have a different kind of orientation, so to speak. So the Psalm 8 is what we call a psalm of orientation, which celebrates life and joy and beauty. And you even see that in the beginning of that psalm where it says we, you know, we want to magnify the name of the Lord. He has set his glory above all the heavens. You know, God has you know, adorned mankind and humanity with glory and honor. You just feel the beauty and the goodness and the celebration of life in Psalm 8. That's a psalm of orientation. But that's not... Like representing all of life, is it? Because there's also psalms of disorientation that speak of pain and difficulty and suffering and sin. And you'll feel the difference in Psalm 130, even at the first verse where it says, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Way different than the beginning of Psalm 8. Magnify the Lord. Our God, His, His glory sets above the heavens. Way different feel, right? That's why it's called a psalm of disorientation. Out of the depths. I cry out to you. And so, yeah, I just encourage if, if you haven't done the first one, that's okay. <laughs> just jump in and, and memorize Psalm 130. It's just a way for us to journey together over the season of Lent. All right? Super. So we're, we're finishing up our parables of the kingdom. So we've been, since the beginning of the year, in a kind of a series on the parables, these short stories that God, Jesus teaches to kind of bring home a point that hopefully penetrates really hard, callous hearts. So we started off... The year with the parables of money. We spent the last few weeks in the parables of the kingdom. Next week, we're going to spend some time in the parables of judgment, which all of us have been so excited about the parables of judgment. Amen. And so, and I just, I really want to encourage you to come back. And here's maybe a couple ways to entice your coming back. One is that if there's one word that I would love for um, God to do in us as we go through the parables of the judgment, and that's word is urgency. I think we lose a little urgency here because there's there's a long time here, and God has still not come back. You know, he hasn't set things right. And we can find ourselves getting a little complacent in life. And, and I think the parables of judgment kind of ignites a sense of urgency for us. And I think it's good for us to kind of have that little spark in us. The other phrase that hopefully will encourage you to come back, um, and it may cause some questions here too, but look, we, we are not a judgment-free zone. That's good for a gym. All right, it's okay for a gym, but I'm not speaking truth to you if I would say that about a church. We're not a judgment-free zone. And so if that, like, upsets you, makes you mad, hopefully it'll help you come back, right? Because uh, I, I don't think it means what you think it means, right? As, you know, Princess Broad would say, all right, amen? If you, so that's kind of weird how that all kind of fits together with Parables of the Judgment, but I love that movie. So I just want to encourage you to come back. It's going to be... Uh, a great time for us to kind of work through some stuff that's really hard and difficult. It will be hard, right? 
uh, but it's good for us. And so I encourage you to come back as we kind of land the plane on the parables, working through the parables of judgment. But today, we're talking about the kingdom. So when we stand together in honor of reading God's word. So I recognize that this parable, for a lot of us in this room, uh, is probably familiar. You may have heard several sermons on it. And my prayer for us, is, what's been my prayer this week, is that God would just surprise us. That he would show us something new, refreshing here. Um, the word of God is living and active. It's not dead. It's living and active even as we speak and read it together. And so I'm just asking God to do that in me and to do that in our midst this morning. So hear the word of the Lord starting in verse 44. So remember, this is Jesus speaking. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. And when a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. And when he found one of great value, he went away, sold everything he had, and bought it. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we're so thankful, I say this often here, that you've not left us in the dark, but Lord, you have spoken to us. You've given us your word. And it's a beautiful word that gives guidance and direction, and at times, a hard word because it brings conviction. And so whatever the Spirit needs to do in our lives, Lord, we ask and invite you to do that this morning. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So I, asking you to kind of imagine with me a little bit, and I don't mean to kind of start uh, the sermon off as a kind of a Debbie Downer, so to speak. Uh, but if you imagine with me, just say, you know, let's just... Just imagine that you are, are dying of a disease, all right? So it can be cancer, it can be whatever, but you have been diagnosed with a disease and you're dying of that, all right? So I know it's kind of hard for us to imagine that, but just kind of work with me here. Uh, and th this week you go to your doctor or your specialist and your doctor gives you some good news. And that is this, is that the doctor's found a certain kind of medicine that will cure you of your disease completely. But here's the bad news. It will cost you your house. It will cost you your favorite car that you've spent months and years saving to purchase. It'll cost you your, um, your vintage record collection. If you collect a vintage record collection, I don't know. It's going to cost you everything in order to get this medicine that will cure you of your disease. So what do you do? I realize that there are some outliers, possibly, right? But for the majority of us in this room, we will do whatever it takes to get this medicine because we want to live. We will sell our house. We will sell the car. We will sell the, the vintage record collection, whatever it is. At one time, those had value, but now you've found something of greater value. And it absolutely makes sense for you to let go of all these lesser things because you have a need for a medicine which is of great value to save your life. You will do whatever it is necessary to gain, to grasp, to get this medicine. That's exactly what Jesus is doing in this parable. He is speaking to us about the, the value of the kingdom. The value of the kingdom of heaven. The value 
of the kingdom of God. So just, just remember, whenever you hear language, kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven is primarily used in the gospel of Matthew because Matthew is speaking to a Jewish audience. Kingdom of God is primarily used in Luke's gospel because Luke is speaking to primarily a Gentile audience. But they're synonymous. They're the same thing. And just in case some of us are rolling in here and you're going, man, kingdom language seems a little weird and I don't use this real often. What in the world are you talking about? Well, remember, when we talk about kingdom, we're talking about something that's been in place since the very beginning. This is not something new that Jesus busts on the scene with. No, this has been going on since the beginning of time. God has always been about a people and a place under his reign and rule. Are you following me? God has always been about a people and a place under his reign and rule. So it first started off with the people, and that people was what? Say it out loud. We're in large group discussion, right? What's the people that he first started working with? All right, Adam and Eve, yeah, okay, move a little further down. All right, what's the next larger group of people? What? Yeah, Israelites, the Jewish nation. That's the people of God that we see all throughout the Old Testament. That's who he's working with. And there was a specific place. They were all longing to go where? To land of what? We're speaking in tongues right now. All right, awesome. Canaan, the land of Canaan. So that's, that's the, the place, the people of God, nation in the land of Canaan under the rule and reign of God. That is kingdom. That's kingdom language. Well, that all messed up. When the people of God rebelled against God, disobeyed his law, and as a good father, he comes and disciplines his children. He scatters them throughout the nations. They, they, they come and take over the land of Canaan, and now they're in, you know, all over the place under foreign rule and reign, and they no longer have a land to call their own. And so as we see in the Old Testament prophets, they're always speaking of a Messiah, the coming one that's going to reestablish what they have lost. And so Jesus shows up on the scene, and he has this provocative language that says this, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is in your midst. The kingdom of God is here. And the Jewish people are going, what? What you talking about, Willis, right? That's what, okay, few, few people remember that show. Like, I'm really dating myself right now, aren't I, Right. But that's what, like, like, that's what they're saying, basically. They don't get this. It's like, we're still all scattered. We're, we're still under foreign rule and reign. We're, we're still, you know, we're not in our homeland anymore. Like, what do you mean the kingdom of God is at hand? Well, when Jesus shows up on the scene, he begins to redefine kingdom. It's no longer about one people group. It's about all nations. And it's no longer about a land specifically. Because where Jesus is, the kingdom of God is. Where Jesus is, the kingdom of God is present. That's why he could say the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is in your midst. Because wherever Jesus is, therefore the kingdom is also. And so look, look, I know this sounds kind of crazy, but here, think about this. This is also synonymous. You receiving Jesus, being put into a right relationship with him, is also receiving the kingdom. You follow me? You receiving Jesus is synonymous to you receiving the kingdom. And so with that mindset, you've got to allow that to kind of bleed into understanding this parable. So when Jesus speaks of the kingdom of heaven, not in full, but in part, he's also speaking about this reconciliation that's happened between you and God through the work of Jesus Christ. Kingdom of heaven can be synonymous with saying you're in right relationship with God. Now, with that in mind, let's kind of work through this parable real quick here. So I'm going to bring out like 
two big observations from this parable that all of us should see. I mean, it's obvious, but we all wanna, I want to make sure we're, we're all on the same page. So I'm going to state the obvious here, all right? Two big observations. The first one is this. Both of these guys find something of great value, right? Both of them find something of great value. One of them kind of stumbles on it, and the other one is seeking it out. I mean, look what happened here. Look at verse, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like, what? A treasure hidden in the field. And when a man found it, he hid it again. That sounds really strange, doesn't it? Like, why in the world, you know, why would you hide a treasure in a field? That just seems weird, right? Well, you got to remember in this time, like, number one, they didn't have, like, banks like we know about. You know, they didn't have, like, big massive safes like we would have, or they didn't have like safety deposit boxes where you would kind of hide your treasures. And this, this, this time too was always, you know, frequent with war. And so you don't hide your treasure in your home because most likely it would get stolen. A thief would break in and in the time of war would get, you know, whatever. And, and, and so what you did in this time is you went and dug a hole, found a field, dug a hole and buried your treasure. Now the only problem with that is if this person went off to war or something happened to him, well, what happened to the treasure? It would just stay there because no one had any idea that there's buried treasure, right? Because the secret went with him as he died or whatever happened to him. And so this would, you know, it wasn't like it frequently happens. Kind of like, you know, not everybody wins the lottery weekly, right? But every once in a while you hear someone winning the lottery. Well, that's kind of similar in this time. Like every once in a while someone would stumble upon a treasure, they would be just kind of out. This is kind of basically what's happened with this guy. He's probably out in the field working and boom. Like he's just like, oh, wow, I, I found a beautiful, expensive treasure here. He just stumbles upon it. It's kind of a total shock, completely by accident. He wasn't seeking this out. He just was doing his job and boom, there's a treasure. So he finds something of great value. Well, the other guy also, it's similar, yet it's a little bit different. Look what happened with the other guy, verse 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven. Is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. And when he found one of great value. So, so here's a merchant. This guy's probably wealthy. So a little bit different than the worker. He's probably more of a poor person. But this guy's more on the wealth side. And so he's, he's on a search. He's looking for a specific kind of pearl. But at the same time, I think you could also say he finds something of such great value unexpectedly. It's almost like you can also say he stumbles upon this too. Yeah, he's seeking it out. He's searching for it, but he's really surprised at finding something of such great value. So the first big observation, yes, man, I know it's obvious, but we're going to say it anyways. Both of these guys find something of great value. And the second observation is this. Both of them respond the same way. Both find something of great value, and both of them respond the same way. Look what happened in verse 44, the kingdom of heaven, and remember, kingdom of heaven, synonymous with the reconciliation relationship with Christ. That's, that's kind of in relationship with God. That's what we want to kind of think about when we think about kingdom of heaven. It's like a treasure hidden in the field, and when a man found it, what did he do with it? He hid it again. He didn't want anybody else to stumble upon it, right? It's like, I'm going to find a good spot to hide this bad boy, right? He hid it again, and then in his joy, he went and sowed all he had and bought that field. So he hid this treasure and in his joy went back and sold everything so that he can buy this field where he found the treasure. 
Look what happened in verse 45 with the merchant. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. What happened when he found one of great value? He also went away and sold everything he had and bought it. So look, look, what, what is Jesus trying to emphasize for us in these parables? What is he trying to kind of like bring to the spotlight? Well, this is what he's trying to bring to the spotlight because why? Because he repeats it two times. He's bringing to the spotlight this idea that these people sold everything in order to get the treasure, sold everything in order to get this fine pearl. That's what Jesus is wanting to bring home here. Now, if you're reading this, I think a question that you ask is this, is this the work that I got to do to get in the kingdom of heaven? Do I need to sell everything? Is this the work that I got to do to get into the kingdom of heaven? No, it's not. That's a gift. I mean, follow this, God. The selling of everything is in response to finding the treasure. The selling is a condition not for finding, but selling is a condition for having it. Are you following me? Selling is not a condition for finding this treasure in the field, for finding this pearl of great value. No, but it is the condition for having it. If the guy, Henry, we'll call him Henry, right? Henry sounds like a great name. Henry, if he doesn't go and sell everything, he can't purchase the land. He's got to liquidate his assets in order to get the land where the treasure is. If Johnny, whatever, the merchant, doesn't go and sell all his other pearls, everything else he has, he can't go and buy the one of great value. I really loved um, Bruner's his last name, Frederick, I think his first name is. He's got a commentary, commentary on Matthew. It's, it's, it's a thick thing, all right? It's, it's a thicky. Uh, but, man, there is a lot of wealth in there, and I've really, really uh, benefited in my own soul uh, through reading that. And this is what he says about this. This is just little phrases here that are helpful. The decisive things in these two parables is not what the men give up. That's not what is emphasized. But the reason for their doing so, the overwhelming experience of the splendor of their discovery. Joy enables selling, but only selling gets to treasure. Are you following me? Joy enables, it empowers selling, but only Selling gets the fine pearl. Now, if you take some time to reflect upon that, right? You just take a little bit of time to kind of think about selling everything, this thing that Jesus is emphasizing. I think there are a few things that come to your mind. First one is this. That sounds crazy. Can, can you try to imagine a little bit like Henry? Henry's the guy that's, you know, went and bought the field, all right? Can you imagine him trying to tell his buddies what he's doing? An outsider looking in on what Henry's doing and selling everything to go buy a field. Man, that field could be a piece of junk. It could have been full of rocks. Probably not good farming. Henry, what are you doing buying a field? That's the stupidest thing ever, right? He's not going to tell them about the hidden treasure because then they'll go try to buy the field. So as an outsider looking in, it looks almost crazy on what they're doing. Like otherworldly, out of their mind what they're doing. And I've said this before, but in fact, what is happening here is what each of us have done. If you're married in here, when you go and do and exchange your wedding vows, right? When you exchange your wedding vows with your spouse, you forsake all others. That's what you say. And I've never done a wedding 
where someone came to me and said, hey, Lyle, I want you to read the kind of the exception clause to the forsaking of all others as we're doing the wedding vows, right? That never happened. Never in my 20 some odd years of doing weddings. Because why? You don't go there going, hey, well, I'll, I'll forsake all others as long as it's not this, this, and this, right? Because that, that ain't working at all. Well, that's, that's what's happening here. Actually, it, it, for these guys, it would, it would be crazy for them not to do this. For them, it would be absolutely foolish for them not to do this. This is a beautiful, better trade-off, right? Yes, to an outside world looking in, it looks crazy. But to these two guys, this made absolute, complete sense. The other thing you see here, too, when you kind of reflect upon this, is that there is absolutely no sacrifice here. These guys are not sacrificing. They want to do this. No one has to talk them into it. It's not like, it's not like Henry, right, is going to go purchase the field where there's a billion-dollar treasure, right? Just, like, just kind of put it in like, you know, tactile maybe, possibly. He's not going there thinking this. Oh, man, it's going to be tough giving up $10,000. Wow. I've been saving for years. Oh, those 20s, all those 50s. Man, it's just going to be so tough giving up $10,000. Will you pray for me, Right? There's no sacrifice. He's given up 10 grand for a billion dollar treasure, right? If Henry's doing that and you're his buddy, you're going, hello, <laughs> right? Wake up, man. Think about what you're giving up. This is not a sacrifice. It's 10 grand. Think about what you're gaining. You're gaining a billion dollar treasure. This makes sense. No one is making them do this. There is no sacrifice here. They're not losing anything, but gaining immensely. And that's what a relationship with God through Jesus Christ is like. Are you following me? You're not losing. There's no loss there. It may feel like it. But there's enormous gain. You're giving up 10 grand for a billion dollar treasure. There's no sacrifice. They wanted to. Another thing you see with this too, as you kind of reflect on selling everything, is this. No one tells them to do this, and I love that. No one has to command them to go sell everything to buy the treasure. No one does, right? It just comes natural. And in fact, Jesus kind of emphasizes with Henry, all right? Thanks for following along with the Henry deal. He says, in his joy, in his joy goes and sells everything. And, and I, would, I would say that even though it's not stated explicitly, it's also implied with the merchant. Because if you're, if you're a kind of a, you know, I don't know, a jeweler hunter? I don't know what you call those people. Maybe something like, if you go and hunt jewels or whatever it is, just think about this. If you've spent your life kind of looking for this fine pearl and then you find it, aren't you a little bit giddy, right? Just a little bit. I would say you're more than a little bit. You're like enthusiastic. And at the same time, I would say then, therefore, it's in his joy that he goes and sells everything in order 
to buy this pearl. The joy of discovery causes the zeal of selling. No one has to command them to do it. The joy of discovery causes the zeal of selling. Translation, here's our translation of that. Grace always precedes works. Grace always precedes obedience. So look, look, look. If you want people to obey the law of God, you don't preach the law of God. All right, hoping to get a little bit of amens there, but maybe there's just one and it was me inside my own soul. Amen, I'll say it again, right? If you want people to obey the law of God, you don't preach the law of God. You know what you preach? You preach the beauty of God. You give people a vision of all they have in Jesus Christ. You give them a vision of the beautiful nature of Jesus. You read the Gospels. Read those and see if your heart is not captivated by the presence of Jesus Christ. And when that happens, then obedience follows. It's a no-brainer. It's not like duty. No, it's delight because you're seeing all that you're gaining in Jesus. And you see that his life is the best life for you to live. And just in case you think I'm off my rocker, this is what God has done from the beginning. Go to Exodus chapter 20. How's the Ten Commandments start? Does it start, thou shalt not, because I love law and I just want to hammer everybody I can, right? No, it starts with joy. It starts with delight. Look what he says there. I am the Lord your God who, he's already done this, brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Now, I don't know about you, but you're not doing a golf clap to that, right? You're not going, tick, 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 oh, yeah, we're out of slavery, right? You spent four generations in slavery, 400 years. All you know is slavery. And God comes and rescues you out of that. I'm here to tell you, when they hear that, that's a joyful celebration. Hallelujah. Yeah, they got a little jacked up and began to think that, boy, it's a lot better to be in Egypt than being out of slavery. That's all messed up. That's a whole sermon in of itself. But here's my point is this, is that the commands don't start off with thou shalt not. The commands start off with joy, delight. I've rescued you out of slavery. You are a free people. Therefore, you joyfully respond in obedience. No one had to command them to do this. No one did. The farmer and the merchant are not told to do anything. In fact, the treasure tells them everything they need to do. You following me? The treasure, the great pearl, tells them everything they need to do. First, the treasure, then the selling. First, the pearl, then the selling. Look, Jesus, all he's trying to do here is help us to see the value of the kingdom, the value and the worth to have God, God himself ruling in your own life. We say it like this, there's no better life to live. Yeah, it's a hard life. Yeah, it's a difficult life, but listen to him. There's no better life to live than a life lived under the reign and rule of God. It's beautiful. It's, there's a value there. 
Like Jesus is going, look, there's, there's nothing of greater value. It's like a treasure. It's hidden in the field. It's like a fine pearl. There's nothing better than, than God, the one who is all wise and all powerful, who is ruling over all things for your good. The one who is all powerful and all wise is ruling over all things for your good and your joy. So even the most painful, difficult, wounding experiences that you've had in life, God is ruling over that for your good and for your joy. That's how valuable the kingdom is. It's like a treasure. It's like a fine pearl. That's why Paul can say this in Philippians chapter 3. And I would say it's kind of like his version of this parable. I really do. And what's what he says here in verse 7. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss. Why? For the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing grace, greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things, and I consider them a pile of doo-doo. That's what that word means. It means crap. It's that vulgar. I'm not going to use the other vulgar word, but that's what he's saying. It's nothing to him. It's rubbish. I'm not going, oh, I miss that rubbish. Right? No. I got Jesus. I've gained him. I've gained the billion dollar treasure. I count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him. So here's what I want to do. I just want to kind of land the plane here with just one question. That's it. And it's actually, it's actually a question that I have trouble answering at times. And so I can ask it because I'm up here. Don't have to worry about answering it right now. Amen. So I'll work through this and answer it sometime later this week. But here's the question. What do you want? What do you long for? What do you desire? Because I, I think what Jesus is doing here, right, is he's, he's awakening our longings. He's, a, he's, he's speaking to our desires. He's speaking to our wants. Jesus doesn't say the kingdom of heaven is like a plate full of broccoli. And if you love broccoli, just put whatever else you want in there that you hate, right? Jesus didn't say the, the kingdom of heaven is like getting the stomach virus, right? <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't say that. That's, that's awful. Nobody wants that. He didn't say, hey, the kingdom of heaven is like, you know, you're going on a 10-hour trip in a van full of two-year-olds, right? <laughs> Oh my gosh, just one two-year-old, amen? Half a two-year-old, I don't even know what that will look like. Put them in there. Hmm. A lot of joy, maybe. No, Jesus says what? What does he say? The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure. A treasure, you, you want this. You desire this. It's like finding this fine pearl that you've been searching for. He's awakening longing in us. Desire, want. I think one of, the, one of the things you can do as you read about the parables of the kingdom is also kind of read the book of Revelation alongside it. 
Because John, I know, in such poetry and beauty, man, he paints a kind of a vision for us of where this is all going. And, and Ty, one of our pastors here in our elders meeting Wednesday, did kind of led the devotional for our guys. And, and he just reminded me of this little passage there in, in chapter 11, verse 15, where John says this. And, yeah, I'm not going to explain all the seventh angels and all the trumpets, and I'm not going to build a chart or anything like crazy like that. But here, here's what he says. I want to bring out the plain truth. There's a few laughter. Gosh, you guys are killing me up here. Uh, the seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said this, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ. That's what's going to happen. It's already started with Jesus. It's here that has become is a process. It's here, but not full. But that's where we're going, where the kingdom of this world now becomes the kingdom of God, where the kingdom of this world kind of engulfs and now becomes the kingdom of God. And so, so what's that going to feel like, Lyle? What's that going to be like? What's it going to be like to live in this kingdom? Well, we read this last week, and I want to read it again because sometimes we forget in the course of weeks' time. But look what John says in Revelation 21. He's given us a vision for us to see what this kingdom is going to look like when the kingdom of this world now becomes the kingdom of God. He says this, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Now, there's a whole lot of interpretation of what that means and, and what's going on there when it says no longer any sea. But here's where I would say to that. Look, the, the creation of water became, came before the fall. And so I don't think that's saying there's not going to be any ocean or water or seas. And at least I hope not because I want to do some scuba diving. Amen? I'm not scuba diving now because I'd probably drown. But that day, I don't have to worry about drowning. And I might be having gills or I don't know what's going to go on there. But I can breathe underwater, right? I don't have to worry about it. But, but here's, here's what I believe he's saying there all, is the fear that sea travel brought in that time. The kind of anxiety and fear that that cultivated. No longer going to be in this world where God reigns. Can you imagine how peaceful that would be? You don't have to deal with anxiety anymore. You have no more fear. Don't you want that? Look what else he's in. He's not done. That's awesome. He's not done. Verse 2, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying this, Now the dwelling of God is with men. The dwelling of God is with humanity. And guys, look, look, what, what is he saying there? We're finally home. The restlessness that you feel in your soul is because you're not home with God. And there's come, come a day where God dwells with man. He walks with man, walks with humanity like he did with Adam and Eve, like he did with Enoch. There's coming a day where that will no longer be the case. So everything, look guys, look, you got to make these connections. Everything beautiful and good that you experience in this world is because of the presence of God. Love that you experience with your spouse. The joy you see when your, your kids smile or they say their first words, they say dad or mom or whatever. The joy of that is because of God's presence. Springtime, I just seen some, some flowers just this week popping up. It's like beautiful, yellow, love it. I haven't seen that in a while on the ground, amen? Even it's a dandelion for crying out loud, right? We still love them ugly things every once in a while in the spring. You take God out of the picture, darkness, evil, wickedness. Look, guys, don't you want that? It goes on. 
They will be his people, and God himself will be with them, be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. I heard Scotty Smith explain this little phrase. He's a pastor that used to pastor a church in, in Nashville. But he says it's not necessarily, and could possibly be this, where, where, where God is coming and taking his finger and wiping literally every tear from your eyes. But more of what's happening there, based on how we see this language written, is he's giving us the backstory. He's helping us gain a, a, an understanding of that pain that caused that tear and how it fits in the mosaic of your own life. How it's worked out for your good and for your joy. He's going to answer that why question, right? That kind of haunts us when we suffer, when there's pain. He goes on, there will be no more death. No more. There'll be no more mourning. No more crying. No more pain. Why? Because the old order of things has passed away. Do you want this? Doesn't that awaken longing in you? Doesn't that awaken desire? No one's going, I don't want that, right? Every single person on the planet would say, I want this. And here's what Jesus is saying. It only comes through me. No other way. You can fight it. You can argue with it. Do what you want to, but this is what Jesus, God in the flesh, said. There is no way to the Father except through me. And this doesn't become a reality without me. If you want this, this only happens in relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. And just like I said last week, guys, we're, we're, in, we're in a time period where it's marked by invitation. As long as it's called today, and guess what, again, here we are on Sunday, and we call today what? Today, right? And that means this. You have an invitation. Because as long as it's called today, is a day of salvation. And there's going to come a day when that day will no longer be called a day of invitation. It will be called the day of judgment, and it's too late. You want this. So what do you want? What do you long for? What do you desire? Forgiveness? To know that you're enough? That you're loved? That you belong? Healing? Peace? Not just peace in this world, but peace in our own interior world? But guys, I'm not trying to overpromise anything, and I don't think I am. But the only these desires and longings are only found and met in Jesus. That's the only place. So you're, you're, you're looking to some Savior. You're looking to some Messiah to, to bring those to fruition for you. How's it working? How's it working? The kingdom of heaven, being in right relationship with God, is like finding a treasure in a field. The kingdom of heaven, being in right relationship with God, is like finding a pearl of great value. Receive Jesus today. Let's pray.